Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining me. Today I met with Dr. Christine Franklin, and Christine has been a therapist since 1984, and she's been utilizing techniques like CBT, DBT, narrative practices, EMDR, and family therapy to help her clients work through their issues. Christine is on a lifelong journey to learn the latest in theories and techniques in psychotherapy, and is also a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation. She helps individuals and couples with issues of intimacy, levels of desire, sexual addiction, and sexual trauma, and specializes as a sex therapist. In this episode, we discuss the importance of communication and checking in with your partners regularly to continue to improve the quality of all of your lives. We got into a lot of um, interesting aspects around connecting with your partners and overcoming some of the challenges of communication. I had a lot of fun with this conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to Higher Potential Living Podcast. I'm joined today with Kirsty Franklin. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, glad to be here. When I was thinking about the different episodes that I wanted to offer out to the world, I wanted to address particularly about communication within relationships. And you were the first person that came to mind. So before we kind of like, that's a little teaser, but before we get into all of that, (laughs) I'd love it if you could share with us a little bit about your journey and what got you motivated and passionate about doing the work that you're doing today. Wow, okay, well that's a great lead-in because uh, I certainly would not have believed that my dreams at 19 of being a sex therapist would have ever unfolded. And here I am today at 64 and have been practicing as a clinical sex therapist for over 30 years, practicing as a psychotherapist for almost 40. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was uh, in school in my first uh, university experience and which I promptly flunked out of, I'll say that right now. I got four Fs, and so I was uh, discharged from my first university (laughs) experience. Um, And the guidance counselor had really said, you are not cut out for college life, for university life. And I said, what do you mean I'm not cut out for it? I just forgot to withdraw. (laughs) And she said, but you have, by your own admission, your first semester has been all about Uh, sex and love and rock and roll like it's almost like that's all you want to do and I said what year was this again that was 1975 that sounds about right yeah right (laughs) and that's what I did what you did and so I had no concept I got out of high school a year early so I was a very young Hmm. 19 year old I had already had some experiences that were Um, what I thought were fully adult living and I was ready to do university, I thought, and I certainly wasn't. Mm. So when that guidance counselor said, um, well, if you really could do anything, like if there was hope for somebody like you, what might it be? And I said, wow, you know, maybe I should be like a sex therapist since I just love sex so much. And she looked at me like really sad, like I was a hopeless case and said, I don't think there's much of a market for that. Mm. And in that second, there was a part of my brain that said, what do you mean there's not much market for that? There's got to be like, even though I was being somewhat, you know, snarky and sarcastic and funny, I really also was learning about who I was as a sexual being and really wanted to know more and was really wanting to question why people weren't talking about who they wanted to be as a sexual being. And um, I had had my first experience of really having a female attracted to me and wondering, should I really even kind of lean into this? Because I'd had only one other experience with even the word bisexual, and that had happened many years before. And that was a really good experience. But it was almost like, Nobody talked about this. There was no one that I really felt safe or 
that, that, that it would even be really a meaningful discussion. And so that little niggle of a thought, you know, and, and being joking, maybe I'll be a sex therapist, somehow created literally a link in my brain that I kept coming back to. As I, you know, I then left mm -hmm. university, did some other things for a while, returned three years later, and really began in earnest studying with full intention that somewhere along the line, I would, I would investigate more the whole sexual side of psychology. And that is indeed what I did. So that's sort of how I, how I began that, where that came from. And I, I think it would be important to just tell you about that, what I think of as one of the best gifts my mother gave me. And mm. I, I, I'm, not, I'm often dismissive of the gifts my mother gave me because many of those gifts are not quite gifts. They're baggage that I've had to let go over a number of years. But this was truly one of the best things she ever gave me. And that was when I was 14 and came home from high school and said, I have some really exciting news. And she said, oh, yay, what's happened? And I said, well, I'm in love with Milagros. And she said, oh, your best friend, Millie. Well, okay, that's great. And I said, no, no, mom, I'm, I mean, I'm like in love with her. And she said, honey, everybody loves their best friend. And I threw up my hands in exasperation. And I said, mom, do you not get what I'm trying to tell you? I think I'm a lesbian. And my mom kind of looked like she was pondering. And she said, hmm, you know what, honey? Just last week, you had a really big crush on David. And a couple of weeks before that, you had a big crush on Jimmy. And I'm just wondering, do you understand what the word bisexual means? And I said, what? What is that? What is that? And she said, well, when you're bisexual, that means that you can love both boys and girls. And so instead of getting 50% of the population, you can choose from 100%. Hmm. And I said, you mean you get to pick that? Hmm. And she said, well, sure you do. And I said, then that's what I'm picking. And I'm going to call Millie right now and tell her I want to marry her. And she said, uh you may want to hold off on asking her to marry her, but maybe you want to have a conversation about your feelings. And that was the end of our little conversation. Mm -hmm. I called Millie and proposed. Millie hung up on me, called me back and said, are you on drugs? Like, what was that all about? And I said, I was just teasing. It was a big joke. Mm -hmm. And I never again shared that feeling with Milagros because as my best friend, that was not mm -hmm. where her head was in any way. But I think that laid the groundwork for me to recognize that sexuality is tied up into who we are as sacred beings. Mm. And for me, spirituality and sexuality have always been a part of not just who I am, but how I try to help people see themselves. Because for me, the sacred is also the profane. <laughs> You know, it is all one. Like we are, the good and the bad is the sacred. The, the good and the bad mm -hmm. is the sexual. The mm -hmm. good and the bad is us. The, 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 the yin and the yang, the light and the dark. We have to be accepting of all of us, of all parts of us, mm -hmm. so that we can come back into who we really are as profane, sexual, spiritual beings. I remember the first time that I met you, I gravitated directly to your library and I saw so many of the same books on mindfulness and all this kind of stuff that I wasn't expecting to necessarily find on a psychotherapist's shelf. And maybe that was my own conditioning and all this and experiences I had had with other people. But I love the way, even in your language, you kind of marry those, those two worlds together. And I, I want to touch a little bit on that in a, a moment, but I was just thinking a little bit about some of the aspects that you said and one that was so powerful about the, the gift and, and people in the podcast couldn't see the air quotes that you were using when you said ah. no, the gifts that I had, but that piece to say, okay, well maybe just start by having a conversation with her. And that in and of itself is so, if, if there was like any advice that could just drive home for most relationships, like, okay, how about we just have a conversation about that? Not an argument, not a, you know, whatever else comes up in relationships. If anyone yes. who's been married for even a, you know, a minute has probably experienced that, but a conversation 
um, about some of these different issues. So that was a powerful thing that stood out. Then the other piece of just your whole journey of your passion seems to have come from like a void that you found in your, your own life in a way. Like I'm looking for answers to things. And if I'm looking for them, I'm feeling that there's probably a lot of other people out there who are looking for similar answers. And to have that be the drive to your passion is, is such a beautiful testament to being able to really follow that. And, and here you are X amount of years later and still doing it, you know, maybe retirement's looking in the shadows, but um, for those that don't know, Kirsty and I were just kind of talking about, you know, what does a person like you, you know, do when they retire? And instead of saying, I'm just going to relax on a beach, it's I want to keynote speak, I want to help more people in a different way. And I think that is what comes from really doing what you love in life. So kudos to you on that one. First of all, it's very inspiring um, from, from this perspective. So around the piece with communication, I want to jump into that a little bit. When you're first, because I, I know with even the work that I do and, and um, you know, even with the two of us, you have referred a couple of clients to me as well. And I've worked with some of the people who are going through separation and stuff like that. And I know that some of the things that always comes up is around that piece about communication, feeling safe to communicate, laying the framework for communication, and just that fear that if I communicate my truth, that it might not be accepted the way I want it to be by my partner. So if there's people out there listening right now that you know are thinking about addressing certain issues in their relationship or feel like you know things are just okay, but they can actually be fantastic, what are some of the ways that you start off by telling people how to approach some of those conversations? Okay, well, I, I, you know, I'm really glad, first of all, that you're talking about um, people having conversations long before they don't have conversations. <laughs> right. Because what happens so often in relationships is, you know, we, we start out, oxytocin is coursing through every fiber of our being. You know, on a cellular level, our brain is helping us to seek the perfect partner and it's dumping that love hormone everywhere and we feel so good about our partners and our, our chosen love interest that we're willing to talk just about everything and anything and in those exploratory months we are so open and seemingly transparent and it's like wow you believe that too wow i feel that way too and everything is meshing so wonderful and then oxytocin stops when we have captured our mate. And when we now are leaning into this new part of our bell-shaped curve of a relationship, because remember, every relationship starts out like a bell-shaped curve. Sometimes we don't even really like the person that we end up falling in love with. We're like, really? Them? There's no interest. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, our interest starts to peak. Mm -hmm. We climb up that bell-shaped curve. And before we know it, we're at the apex and we're like, this is the soulmate. This is the one out of over 7 billion people. I found them. I'm grabbing them. I've got them. And then the descent begins down the other side of the bell-shaped curve. And many couples don't catch themselves in time. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, whoa, wait a minute. We're not talking. We're not sharing our innermost selves anymore. We're not we're not talking about what's hurtful, what's harmful, what's sacred, what I need, what I want, what I'm not getting, what I'm not giving. Mm -hmm. We shut down and expect that this person who shares all of those same dreams and similarities and everything that we thought was so wonderful appears to be a stranger to us. Mm -hmm. And instead of saying at the very first notice of this, hey, I'm, I'm feeling a little separate from you. How do we return to love? We don't do that. We just go about our business thinking and hoping and wishing that why isn't our partner getting us? I'm doing everything in this relationship. And we stop looking at the relationship as a place where we have the ability to be the best version of who we are in relation to another human being. Mm -hmm. And we start allowing that ego side of ourselves to say, I'm not getting what I want. Mm -hmm. And anytime we are fixated on not getting what 
I want, we're forgetting that our partner is probably also wondering why they're not getting what they want. And, mm -hmm. and it's about literally learning from the very beginning of a relationship to have ways to soften that harshness that we feel when we are defensive about anything. So many couples deflect or they blame or they point fingers or they, they believe that it's something um, that their partner isn't doing for them. And they don't have the ability to say hand on heart. And for me, um, I, you, if your viewers won't be able to see this, but I'm a big proponent of putting your dominant hand over your heart space because our brain registers everything, you know, millions of things every second. And one of the things we now know is that putting your hand over your heart space says to your brain, something's wrong. Something's not 100% okay. When we do that, whether it's because we have a pain there from a heart problem or indigestion or just wanting to make a strong point, putting our hand on our heart space indicates to the brain, help, help, and the brain dumps a little tiny drop of dopamine. When we put our hand there and we look at our partner and say, I'd like to have a hard conversation. Mm -hmm. And we say it with a soft tone. What that can mean is you're allowing your partner to say, hard conversation. You know what? I've got to get to work right now, or I've got a headache, or the kids were just screaming at me, or I've got something that I've got to do for work. And this isn't a good time. We can say, you know what? Thank you for offering this time for this hard conversation. I can't do this right now. Let's negotiate a time that we can have this conversation. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. We go, mm -hmm. you know what's going to happen to me today? And you know what I'm upset about? And I'll be darned if you don't start doing this. Mm -hmm. And we, we just attack and deflect and defend. And literally, if we can just learn to soften, mm -hmm. soften. Remember that the person who is, with you is the most sacred being just like you who has the same insecurities needs wants unexpressed emotion unexpressed desire that maybe they have no idea how to get to or to talk about so when you suggest things like i'd like to have a, a hard conversation or a difficult conversation or even saying something like this is really scary for me but i'd like to talk about xyz when can mm -hmm. we do that because then we give our partner time to get their head settled mm -hmm. and in a place where they're ready to meet us. And, and so for, for many couples, you know, I, these days it's astonishing to me how many couples really are being thoughtful as they are considering living together, considering marriage. They're actually saying, maybe we should talk to somebody about our differences and our similarities right now before we marry to see if there's places we can tweak our relationship. And so it's been a beautiful experience for me as a clinical sex therapist to have people come into my office and say, help us talk about who we want to be and who we want to show up as, as sexual selves. Mm. How, do we, how do we feel comfortable about in our own skin who we are and then convey that to our partner? And so helping people marry the way that th their beliefs and their thoughts and their expressions of who they are as sexual beings in a conversation with their partner it can be non-threatening. It can be accepting. Because in North America, we have such a jaded sex negative viewpoint. Like, mm -hmm. sex is fabulous. Sex is amazing. Sex is wonderful. But we, you know, we advertise the sale of Jaguars mm -hmm. with sex. We put scantily clad, cladded adolescents, you know, in magazine ads. You know, but we don't talk about how people can so quickly feel ashamed about their sex and that they, they or their sex drive or their sexual needs and mm -hmm. maybe their kinks or their fetishes or their desires. And in my world, between consenting adults, there's nothing that's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, what's wrong with our sexual selves in this world is that we hide sex. Like we don't allow people who are physically disabled or who are in wheelchairs. We don't help them learn to masturbate. We don't help them have sexual partners, people who are in prison. We don't, most, most often there is not any way for people to be 
have their sexual needs met. People who mm -hmm. are in nursing homes, people who are in hospitals. It's like we, if you are not an, at a 100%, and again, here's, here's my air quotes, normal person, <laughs> you don't get to be sexual. And we are so, we're missing talking about how important sex is to everybody, all of us. You know what the next movement I want to be? I want it to be sex matters. Mm. Because it does. It is so important to talk about out loud with your partner where you are on that whole sexual spectrum. And Kinsey let us know back in the 50s that sexuality, gender expression is on a wide, large spectrum. Mm -hmm. you know? And that there are very few of us who are all the way heterosexual, all the way homosexual, all the way monogamous, or all the way polyamorous. You know, mm -hmm. there are lots of shades in between. And as long as we're talking, we can, we can make sense of where we are on a sexual spectrum. I love it. I'm sitting yeah. over here with such a smile on my face because <laughs> I know for probably a lot of people who are going to listen to this, that even like saying the word sex in the way that you are, just throwing it out there like that, is going to probably make some people cringe. And I think that's such an important question to ask is where is that coming from? What's causing that? When you feel discomfort to talk about something that is probably on most of our minds for the majority of the day, whether it be you know in a positive light, in a negative light, or just, oh, look at that person walking by, it's on our minds. And yet to cringe when it's talked about, to hear the word sex or to hear the word masturbate and cringe, it's so... It can be such an important tool in those moments. And I think this speaks a lot to what you were talking about, marrying that um, sexual with, with um, spiritual in a way. Because to me, like my mindfulness background, that's so much of, of the work. That's so much of the contemplation meditation. That's the shadow work. When you find something that tweaks you that way, to look into that. If enlightenment is self-realization, then don't you want to know more about yourself? And yet there's exactly. so many people that are so afraid of it, right? Oh, man, that's, I love so many different things that you, you said there. I, one of the things that I thought of when you go down on the other side of that bell curve and you are not addressing these things that are coming up, I know in my own experience and people that I've worked with and talked to, there's sometimes just the thought there, oh, they're going through something right now or we're going through something right now and I'm not going to bring it up because it'll pass and then it doesn't pass. And then these little seeds of resentment start to build up and they might seem so tiny, but it seems like, you know, again, it's that straw that broke the camel's back and they build up and they build up and they build up. So if all of a sudden we realize after months, years, sometimes that, okay, this isn't something that's temporary. This is now our new norm that we are as distant as we are, or we have this resentment towards each other. How do we start that healing process again? Well, fabulous question, because what I, I, I really like your listeners to understand is that they don't need to come to a sex therapist. They don't need to come to a psychotherapist. They can return to themselves and their partner by just literally saying, could we begin to talk out loud about where we are right now? Because what often happens, people get in this loop of, of, of trying to go back and heal all the past wrongs, mm. all those past places where there was our shadow selves that did something, you know, not nice or not helpful or not um, couple serving, but self-serving. And, and we want to sometimes dissect and go over the past ad nauseum. And what we have to really do is say, where is my struggle right now? And mm -hmm. how, how, how can my struggle today, by talking about it, propel us forward instead of pushing us backward? Because so often, people want to stick with what's their perpetual problem. And all of us have perpetual problems in a relationship that we are not going to be able to solve. And yet, um, actually, maybe it would be helpful if, if, because this is not a viewing, this is a listening, if I just show you a little experiment. Okay, I love so it. Let's just say for a second that all of your listeners can very quickly um, 
think of a time that they were really, really angry and upset with their partner. So if you just take mm -hmm. a second, everybody, and get that visualization in your head for a second. Okay, I'm guessing it doesn't take most of us very mm -hmm. long to think about that last time. And now I want you to do a little bit deeper dive. I want to make sure that you close your eyes for this. I want you to remember the first time you knew you loved that person. Like a memory where, wow, you felt it everywhere. Open your eyes. What was a more powerful visualization? When you had that love visualization, did you just, were you able to go right back there to that? Jason, for you, were you? Oh, totally. That definitely, even now, what's still standing out is not the cringe-worthy feelings or anything like that. It's that euphoric feeling. Exactly. And think of that. We took, what, one minute for that. So what we forget, or what many people don't even know, is that returning to love literally can be like turning on a light switch. Mm. What happens is we've got so much baggage in our head, we don't want to turn that light switch. We want to discuss the stuff. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure the stuff is never going to happen again. The bad's never going to come back. The past isn't going to bite us again. We don't know that, right? Mm -hmm. All those universal laws that you and I know that, you know, that, that, that pain is going to be a part of our life. Mm -hmm. Life is not always going to go according to plan. Everything is going to change, right? Mm -hmm. Our partners are not always going to be loving and kind to us. When we can remember that, we can just say, in this moment, I can return to love. And for, for couples who have forgot how to do that, doing that simple exercise of reminding them that it's still up here in this big space between our ears that holds really the seat of who we are as sexual beings, but because we've laid down so many neurons and so many neural paths of trauma and neural paths of anger and neural pathways of disappointment and unfortunately just like any kind of habit when we replay those old tapes over and over again when we tell ourselves that old narrative of he did this to me but she did this or they did this or what happens is our brains are firing out of necessity mm -hmm. on the negative Mm -hmm. But we have the opportunity because we can change the way that we think. We can change those negative responses to a positive response. We can learn how to flip that switch to turn on that neural activity again to return to love. And when we do that often enough and when we soften often enough, we literally can return to love over and over and over again. Yeah, that's so great. I love you're speaking my language with all like the neuro stuff. I'm like, <laughs> like a little giddy schoolboy over here. Um, I, it's one of the things that I've always found fascinating, you touched on it in, in that last piece was around when people come to that point where they say, perhaps, you know what, who we were in the beginning of our relationship, who we are now, and what's going to help serve us throughout our lives. It's just not adding up and people end up getting to that point of where they're going to separate. And sometimes, sometimes it's as nice and neat as what I just described. Often it's not. And what I've found with the people that I've worked with who are going through separation is how they could have possibly spent like 30 amazing years together, 30 amazing years together, maybe raised a family. And it's like the last three years or something is what stands out the most for them. And to me, that's just like a blown up version of that exercise that you just talked about. And instead of thinking about all the amazing things they shared, the journeys, the adventures, let's fixate on those last three years where things really started diving down. And it seems to bring up all of this spite and entitlement. And again, like in, in the world of mindfulness and all of this kind of stuff, those are like our our favorite juicy things to try to dig out in ourselves, <laughs> this idea of entitlement and it's, it's, it's a very interesting to have those conversations, especially when people are trying to mediate and separation and say, okay, well, how is this going? And to just see people make assumptions about their partner at this point now. And I've heard so many say, oh, they just want to take me for everything. They just want me to feel bad as much as possible. They want to 
just crush me into the ground, take my kids away and just ruin my life. And I often wonder how much of that, because I only usually get to hear it from one perspective. I haven't done much work with couples. I usually only get to hear it from one perspective. But when we start to open our mind to the possibility that we're all these injured, traumatized, almost like broken people, or not broken people, but have had let's say cracks in those layers of identity that we, maybe that's getting a little too deep, but um, how often do we actually find that it's just spite and just, you know, trying to dive that knife in a little bit deeper or how much is it just fear and sadness that's finding these weird ways to manifest themselves? Oh boy. What a, you said this podcast can only be 50 minutes. I need 15 hours. <laughs> right. Okay. Because if I had, if I could do one thing differently um, in my long career, it would be to, to really help people understand that the, the best gift they can give to themselves in their relationship is to constantly be checking in with, am I treating my partner? Am I giving my partner what I would like to have given to me? Mm. And, and, you know, what often happens is that we want our partners to treat us in a certain way and we want our partners to be respectful to us and we want our partners never to hurt us and never desert us and mm. never leave us and never turn away from us and yet we do that in many subtle ways all the time to our partner and it would be to help partners from the beginning to sign contracts on mindfulness <laughs> and to learn how to be more mindful Mm. And to learn how to be more self-compassionate so that when they are self-compassionate, they can be compassionate to their partner. Because we are all such harsh inner critics. And when we have a harsh inner critic or a harsh inner judge, the best person to act that out on is with our intimate partner. And mm. so we judge them. We critique them. We, we point out all their flaws because they are our mirror. And if we could instead say, anytime we look at a mirror, it is an opposite reflection. And so if I'm feeling very angry, when I'm feeling very angry, just ask myself, where is the opposite feeling behind that? Where, how can I bring love into this anger? Because anger is a natural and real emotion, and we don't want to tamp that down. But we don't have to say, you know, slam the table or punch a wall or, or, or hurl insults at our partner. We can just say, I'm really, really angry at this. And this is why I'm angry and take responsibility and be mindful enough to, to acknowledge where we feel angry without making it be our partner's responsibility to fix us, solve it, or do anything other than if our partner really has some peace in there to say, that's very interesting. I'm curious how I can change that and then have a conversation around that. Because if we're doing something that we don't know that we're doing, we have to be open to being willing to change that because so often we, we have character flaws or character defects that we don't want to address, but boy, we, we notice them in our partner and we want them to fix them and address them immediately. Mm -hmm. Right? So I would go back to this really clear concept of helping people understand that to be in relationship with another person means to also be in relationship to yourself mm -hmm. and to constantly be questioning is what I'm doing for this relationship kind of thing that I want done for me. And so, you know, in my, my partner is the most important, beautiful piece of my life. And, um, and I value him and I praise him and I consult him on almost everything. Boy, there's times he, I am the meanest, nastiest, unkind person to this human being that I love. And mm. what I've learned is for me, in the moment that I notice that I'm not being loving, I apologize, check in immediately. So sometimes it looks like this. Why the heck did you do? What the? Oh, my gosh. Oh, sorry. Can I rewind that? <laughs> Honey. Why did, why did you do X, Y, Z? And literally, and we laugh about it now, but what, what used to happen was 
I'd have to go away for a few seconds and go, oh my God, did I really just rage at my partner? Mm -hmm. I have to come back in the room where he is sitting, you know, dejected or despondent or looking like, did this fabulous psychotherapist who is a couple's relationship expert really Mm -hmm. just call me a lazy shit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, she did. And she feels horrific about it because of all things, my partner is not a lazy shit. Mm-hmm. And yet sometimes that my inside brain gets so overwhelmed and that something from the past triggers it. And I say those horrific things. And what I have to do is return to love and accept that I have failed. Mm-hmm. And I go and I say, how do I make this right? And sometimes it's just a, a matter of in a second, me saying, I'm sorry, and I, and, and, and I will work so much harder to not do that again, and it's a hug, and we're done, and sometimes it's, you know, um, it takes a, a little while, because it hurts so bad, the, the cutting, hurtful, mean thing that I've said, and so for me, it has been years process of learning to catch it before it comes out, mm-hmm. when I'm thinking it, when I'm noticing that my hands are clenching into a fist, or my chest is getting tighter, my shoulders are crunched up and I feel it there. Oh boy, something's going to come out of my mouth. I don't want it to. Do I want to say something that is going to be kind and loving or do I need to be right and hateful here? Mm. Boy, if I can get my brain to do that, which most of the time it does these days, I can take a breath, put my hands on my heart, close my eyes for a second and remember that first time and Mm -hmm. boom. I'm able to come right back to love and say, please, you know, let God give me the universe, give me the willingness to say what will be helpful and kind and sacred and loving. And even though that took a few seconds to say right now in your brain, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's so fast. Mm-hmm. And the more you practice that, the better you get at not letting that turmoil voice come out and to say something in a kind and thoughtful way like, I'm really angry right now. I might not even be able to say some nice things. So I'd like to know if we can talk in about 15 minutes. And then mm-hmm. in that 15 minutes, I might, I might do a couple of yoga stretches. I might do a quick walk around my yard. I might, um, I might lie out on, you know, on my deck and look up at the stars or the, the sky and the clouds and just park some of that negative stuff on a falling star or a cloud going by or mm-hmm. you know, someplace where I have the space to return to love because for me that's what it's always about is that return to love finding a way to return to love i love that you called it a practice because it needs to i in my mentality i see it all as like developing muscles you 100 and yeah it gets to the point yes. where you could do 20 push-ups when you were in your 20s if you don't practice it if you don't continue it you can't say oh no i got that down pat and then, you know, 30 years later, you go to try to do a push-up and you, you fall down to the face plant or something like that. It's totally the same thing in my experience anyway, with these kinds of abilities to catch yourself. I've been doing Absolutely. meditation and mindfulness for over 20 years. And it's not, it's not a straight line of progression by any means. And it's still a constant. And it's funny because there's almost something with our partners particularly our primary partners that seems to like bring up even more ego of like competition and I can't admit that I was wrong Uh, you can't admit that you're smarter than me in any way and we have this like way that we're always measuring each other beside one another and oh I had I have one of my big win moments it was only like a month ago again practicing this for years and uh, my wife and I were in the hot tub and we were talking about Uh, this course that she's taking and it talks about owning your yeses, owning your noes and owning your maybes. And I was thinking about it and I said, I feel like that aspect around owning your maybes could be used as like a cop out in a way. And I'm not sure if I, you know, and this was just that mentality as I was coming into that conversation. And then um, Lauren said, okay, well, here's my take on this. And she got 30 seconds into explaining her take on it. And I said, okay, I just want to pause for a second. I just want to let you know you've already won me over, but keep going because I'm loving this. And we both had a moment after that conversation, like, hey, that doesn't happen. (laughs) That never happens. Like even when our partner does convince us because we already had our original stance on something, our original viewpoint, we're going to hold on to that and fight with it all the way down to the end. And it's, it's so, when we can get used to that feeling of, 
no, it's okay. You were right. And, and you see it as like, we're both on a journey of trying to dispel ignorance, of trying to grow. And you can let go of this, like this ego that ultimately holds us both back in the end. It can be such a liberating feeling, but we don't even realize that we're doing it half the time until maybe hours later, if that, and we say, huh, yes. man, I'm stubborn sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it's, it's interesting that you had that awareness because something that, uh, that I will never forget, I, John and Julie Gottman are uh, clinical psychologists and, and uh, researchers who are really big in the couples movement. And I, I use a lot of their stuff. I, I believe in a lot of what they say. And, and, and uh, one of the things they do is they have a, a method for helping people after a disagreement or a, mm. a, a fight. And they actually have developed this little pamphlet called Aftermath of a Fight. And I would give that to couples and say, this is a really good use of how you solve a disagreement. So you don't do it right in the middle of a disagreement, but afterwards you sort of analyze how it happens. And you, you know, one partner talks about their view and, and how they, what their triggers were, maybe where, what they were feeling and then the other partner gets to talk and you just listen. And it kind of gives you a way to, to take responsibility for what was your shit in that argument. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I really believed in, in John and Julie Gottman and that, that, that flyer in particular, I just used to love it. And I, I hadn't um, really used it for a long time. And my partner and I had a, a big, big disagreement. And I knew in this disagreement, it was so unfortunate for him because I knew that I was going to win it. Like there was no way he was right. This was, and why couldn't he just get it? I mean, I knew I was right, but mm -hmm. he was just so locked in and I was so angry and I just finally said you know what this is getting us nowhere when you're a little more amenable to discussion um we'll continue this and I stormed out and I walked into my bedroom and I never slammed doors that's just something that's just not in my that's not what I do mm -hmm. but for whatever reason it was just somehow the way that I shut that door it actually made a slamming noise and I, and I heard that door slam and as I heard the door slam I looked down and there was that aftermath of a fight it had fallen out of my briefcase mm -hmm. and was lying right there in front of me. And boy, I reached down to pick that up to go take it to him so he could understand how to resolve this. And then I thought as I was getting ready to open that slam door, you know, I haven't really looked at this. I better look at it really quick so that mm -hmm. when he says X, Y, Z, I can say, and I open it up and I quickly, I'm a speed reader, so I quickly am skimming it and I'm going, oh my gosh about 90% of what this was saying meant that this was my fault. I raced back into the room and shaking the pamphlet and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What just happened was 90% my fault. Can we talk about it? And he goes, oh honey, I've been sitting here thinking about it too and it's 90% my fault. And then we just started laughing because here we were literally five <laughs> minutes before both crazy, crazy needing to be right. And now we're both saying to the other one, you're right. It's okay. You know? And so how quickly that can change when we have the right atmosphere to accept that we are all human beings trying to figure out a way to navigate this crazy, crazy life that we live in and trying to be a healthier, happier, saner, more serene person with mm -hmm. each, each breath we take. I love it. <laughs> I have a complete visual in my head too of you waving this pamphlet and everything. Is <laughs> yeah. perfect. I think um, one of the things that really helped me to be able to catch it in the moment were to was to start with the really small ones. Instead of like, if I jumped right into trying to catch myself in those big fights, then not that I'm much of a fighting person, my background's in Buddhism and, and all this kind of stuff, but right. to catch myself in those moments, I remember one of the ones that really she made a big shift in my, my perspective with this. It was just a simple phone call. Um, my wife was going to be doing belly dancing uh, late into the night until, and she is about 45 minutes away. I said, okay, I'm going to make this spaghetti squash. It's going to take about 45 minutes. So let me know as soon as you leave the dance studio and I'm going to get this squash in the oven. And as soon as you get home, we're going to have food and it's going to be great. And so I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, she should have called by now. So I picked up my phone and I called her and I said, Hey, where are you? She said, I'm five minutes away. And I remember thinking, well, I didn't think it. I said it. I, well, no, you were supposed to call me when you were leaving. And then I would have had this in. And then she said, no, that's not what we agreed upon. And it only took maybe like 30 seconds of us going back and forth until I had that realization. It's such a small little thing 
that ended up like becoming so impactful for me in the long run of, okay, our truth in this moment is totally subjective. We don't have anyone keeping any record of our conversation. So no matter how much we argue it, I'm most likely not going to convince her that we had this conversation and she's not going to convince me. Right. And right. instead of me putting the phone down and just putting the squash inside the oven, we would have just kept going back and forth until she walked in the house. We're still sitting there hungry and not eating simply because we weren't able to say, and we did catch it and said, okay, moral of the story is the squash isn't in yet. So let's put the phone down and get this in and we'll move forward from here. And yet at that moment, I was able to look back at all the times previous in our relationship where that need to be right prevented us from having what could have been amazing evenings together or amazing moments together. Absolutely. And such a simple thing to say, let's put this down, recognize that we're both right in our minds. And I also had a realization about communication at that point too. When we think about communication as a means of me getting my ideas across to you, if you don't pick it up the way that I think that I'm saying it, that's equally my fault. Communication takes both people to be working effectively. Even if I'm trying to talk to you and the way that you need me to communicate is different than every single other person I've ever talked to in my life, my role as the communicator is to speak your language. And yet, instead, I would probably normally get angry because you're not understanding the way that I want to communicate. And it's those little moments that just like blow your mind open and you're like, oh my goodness, I've been living all these years doing this terribly, communicating terribly. But then we move from there, we move forward and we just develop and grow. So then all these things were coming to mind so much when you were sharing your story with your husband, because I think everyone listening can relate to those moments of, oh my goodness, I just slammed the door. I don't normally slam the door or I slap my hand down on the table and that's not me, but now I'm in it. Now I'm committed to this anger. So I need to ride it out to the end where it doesn't need to be that way. We can, right. we can snap out of that. Right. And you know, the, the, the other thing about that is that we regularly, I mean, if you imagine yourself in your, uh, let's say in your mindfulness practice with someone or in your yoga, yoga studio or you know, someplace you're in a, in a place of worship or you're, you know, you're, you're visiting with your 87 year old grandmother. Mm. There's something about in those spaces, somehow our brain knows we do not say an F bomb or we do not do mm -hmm. something that is unkind or, you know, somehow our brain said, but when we are with the person that we hold in the highest esteem, our partner, somehow we turn off that part of our brain that is kind and courteous and loving. Mm -hmm. and what we have to remember is that if we are in relationship with another human being, we need to practice, mm -hmm. practice being loving, being kind, being gracious, being funny, holding space for that sad time or that angry time or that frustrating or, or resentful time and understanding that those are part of our life too. But we don't have to revert to this, you know, those really negative means of expressing emotion. But that's what we've been taught in our society. And if we can come back to states of grace and recognize that we have the capacity to be soft, to mm -hmm. be loving, and that sometimes we're not, but the faster we can remind ourselves that we can return to that, we can get back to that. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I remember also being very impactful uh, was the first time I went through the four agreements and ah, that idea of yes. not taking it personally. Yes. Was such a big and all these little micro mind explosions. It's amazing that my cranium's still in one piece. But uh, this idea of not taking it personally. And I've even had conversations with people around sexuality and shifting the perspective into it's not your partner that doesn't want to do this with you sexually. It's not your partner that doesn't want that. It's their traumas. It's their baggage that's stopping them from really being the fullest in that expression. And when we can shift that even, it's like, oh, my partner is not actually trying to hurt me. My partner is actually not trying to attack me or anything like that. And that they're just as wounded as I am in different ways. Then we can come together with compassion rather than that like resentment. Like when we can actually see it as like, okay, we're both on a team here, both trying to heal our wounds instead of you're creating wounds for me and I'm creating wounds for you. It, what a game changer to kind of like shift that perspective. 
Absolutely. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how the hardest conversations that most of us have in our intimate relationships are around those sexual pieces. Mm-hmm. Because we're not taught that sex is a fabulous, amazing, and wonderful thing to share. We're taught that, you know, too much sex is bad, not enough sex in the, with the right partner is, is bad, or, you know, that this is the way it's done and the only way it's done, um, or that masturbation is not a healthy endeavor, or that thinking too much about sex or too little about sex is right. Or There are so many messages that crowd mm-hmm. our brains, and many of us have lived in dysfunctional family systems where we have been harmed, if not sexually, which so many young people are, are mm-hmm. harmed in a sexual way, whether it's a very brief exposure to something or full-on sexual assault over a number of years. For some people, that little tiny thing is as big as, 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 a, as myriad assaults over time. And yet, all of that is part of who we become and bring to the table as a sexual being. And we have never had a space to talk about who we are as that inner child that was harmed. Or that some people don't like the word inner child. You know, our true self then, that, mm-hmm. that part of us that was irreparably harmed as a child and never given a voice to how we help that true self or inner child become healthy and whole and safe and sacred again. Because once we do that, we can help people begin to say, I might be able to lean back into recognizing who I am as a sexual being now, Mm -hmm. right? And so those are those hard conversations because we are all wired so differently that our sexual selves are often as unknown to us as they are, as they seem to be uh, to our partner. And so it's that, that matter of talking it out loud mm-hmm. and discovering who we are. I mean, back in the day in the sixties, Lonnie Barback, who is t- today still my, one of my all time favorite uh, sex therapist role models, she would hold masturbation circles for women mm-hmm. because women were so uncomfortable with learning how to masturbate. Now what a, what a joyous gift that is to be able to be in a, a room with other women to share that really intimate thing. And I said that to a couple of my, really close, close girl girlfriends. And they said, are you out of your friggin' mind? Are you telling me that today as a sex therapist, you would encourage that kind of exploration? You would do that today? And I said, hundred percent. Are you want to be my first that we start doing this? And they both ran for the hills. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, they couldn't even talk out loud about it. And this is people, these are people that I love and that know my passion about helping us open up to who we are as sexual beings. Because when we are able to own our own truth about the good, the bad, and the ugly, we get a choice mm-hmm. about who we want to show up as today mm-hmm. as a sexual being. And it speaks so much to our society. I was, I was having this conversation with someone recently about how much more accepted it is to, you know, play horror fix, flicks in, in theaters and to, you know, watch people murdering each other and, and showing all of this war and violence and gore and all this kind of stuff. And even for people to have, you know, fascinations around that. There's people who will put all these kinds of posters up all over their walls and everything else. And it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally acceptable. And yet something, once again, that we're thinking about that ends up being a big foundation in a lot of our relationships it's so taboo to talk about. It's so frowned upon. And I, I challenge anyone who's listening to this, who again, when, when Kirstie talks about masturbation parties and stuff like that, if you're cringing, ask yourself why. Ask yourself where that conditioning comes from. And really, you know, when we can get past that, like I, I run men's gatherings as well. And that has filled me with so much more than I think I'm even offering these other men as a safe place. But to have people come together and talk about their shame around masturbation or how they have to, the lengths that they go through to hide it from their wives that they masturbate and all of this kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those fascinating things that we, so many of us are doing. So many of us are, are partaking in this, but in secrecy, in shadows, like it's a crime, like it's something to <coughs> feel guilty about. And it, that's the right. part that kind of uh, blows mine quite a bit. 
I, I want to be uh, just aware of the time. Like you said, we can, we can, we can make a whole series out of this. Oh, right. yes. But um, one of the things that I'm <laughs> thinking of for my own journey, a lot of this started, I, I'd have to say probably 12 years ago, maybe with uh, the five love languages. And I think that was like the first thing that, uh, which is a book for those that are, are wondering, which was, I think the first time that I realized that we, Gary Chapman. There you go. I knew someone. Yeah. So your viewers, your listeners, Gary Chapman. Yeah. I'm not a names person, <laughs> so I'm glad name. that you That's are. That's the guy that wrote the book. But the the mind blowing aspect behind that was that our needs can be different in a relationship, and that it's okay if my partner's needs are different to mine, and that we can learn to work with our partner's needs and help them learn what our needs are, and that was a the, the just the cracking open of the doorway into so much more around communication and agreements and all this. So if you were going to, if you were going to maybe suggest some resources or ways that people can just kind of start looking at that, look at communication, look at all this kind of stuff. Is there any path or yeah, any resources that you might recommend? Well, I shouldn't have so rudely interrupted you to say Gary Chapman's name, but it is a good starting point. Mm. Um, you can now go online and Google um, the five love languages and take the mini test and <clears throat> without having to pay lots of money to a psychotherapist to interpret your test or, you know, even, even read the book because there's so much online about it now. Mm. But the five love languages will at least help people have a basis to know, <clears throat> excuse me, why maybe your partner doesn't respond to your uh, little gifts that you, you give them because you like to give gifts because that's what your love languages is giving little things, whereas maybe their love language is words of affirmation, and they need to hear over and over again, I love you, I need you, I, I value you, thank you. Those are words of affirmation. But imagine if you are a person who needs to hear words of affirmation, and your partner is someone whose love language is so different that they don't get that, so they never give them to you. So as a starting point, it's just really good to know what kind of things your partner really resonates to in terms of that love language. Is it those words of affirmation? Is it the giving of gifts? Is it the, the magic of touch and the need for that physical affection? Um, is it acts of service? So that means that you know you respond by doing for the other person. Mm -hmm. And when we have that knowledge about the other, it gives us an opportunity to practice what they need, not always what we need. And so mm -hmm. that's a really good reference tool for couples to use um, just to, to know that they're on the same wavelength and in the language that they're speaking in terms of what they like to have done for or to them or with them right and so that's a good starting place i thought it was a, a like you say a great starting point and having an open mind enough to realize that it doesn't just fit within those those neat five little categories for lauren and i with my practice and everything that i do um, I don't emote a lot of emotion. If, I'm, if I have feelings, I process the feelings. I usually sit in a meditation and I'll go through what some of my feelings are. Lauren is an extremely emotional being. And I remember one of the big moments in our lives that came years after we ever discussed love languages or anything was um, I was voicing to her in this exact same voice as, as I am to you. I was going through a bunch of stuff at the time. I had some loved ones pass away and a lot of other stuff was happening at this time in my life. And in this same tone of voice, I said to her, I'm going through a pretty hard time right now. And I would love to be able to just sit on the couch and have like a relaxing evening. And at the time, because I said it that way, she didn't realize how important it was to me because that's not the way that she would demonstrate importance. If it was that important to her, if she was actually going through that hard of a time, she'd be crying while she was saying it. So because I said it with this like even tone in my voice and no tears, it didn't register for her. So she said, well, actually I have to get the newsletter out for the yoga studio and I have to do this. So I can't give you that right now. And so she kind of went about, and this went on for, this was a very busy week in our lives. This went on for like a couple weeks, actually, where all this stuff was coming up. And I would say to her every day, I could really use this from you, but I would say it in this tone of voice. And it wasn't until I got to the point where I actually had a breaking point and I broke down and I was crying. And Lauren, I, <laughs> Lauren's maybe seen me cry um, five times in our entire relationship. 
And she just would like stood back and said, whoa, I had no idea this was actually weighing as heavy on you as it is. And that was one of those really big moments in our relationship to say, okay, we communicate in general differently. And I want to get to know the way you communicate better because I don't want to ever have a moment in our relationship where you're feeling that bad and I wasn't there for you. And that was such a powerful, powerful moment. And so much of it comes from the same concept as the love languages, the five love languages, but it's a slightly different take on it. So exploring that and expanding your mind to how else this can actually, these concepts can trickle through a relationship. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I could sit here and give you a bibliography of books <laughs> that, that, that people mm -hmm. should read, you know, but I, I will admit, uh, you know, on a public podcast, I own over 6,000 books. <laughs> so I'm a, I, I have a little bit of an addiction. And uh, as I'm now winnowing down my, my uh, I'm, I'm, I've stopped buying as of uh, three days ago, mm. uh, but only as of three days ago, because the day that I made the decision that I would be retiring from this phase of, of the kind of work that I do, um, I realized that I don't have to have any more the latest book on, um, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, has struck my fancy because I have wide ranging interests in the field of therapy. So mm. I read everything from acceptance and commitment therapy to, you know, the, the, the latest come as you are book on, on sex therapy or there's mind, whatever, you know, and, and, and my brain is full and I don't need to keep reading to fill my book or to fill my brain. I need to now start downloading some of this brain into an, another format. So that's more talking to people and more, you know, like I said, a different phase of my life, speaking more, engaging more, meeting more people in a different format than the traditional one-on-one -on -one therapy or couples therapy enough. And I look forward to uh, more of these in-depth discussions with you. I understand that you have other places to be and other clients to see. So thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you so much for this conversation. It was such a pleasure having you on today. Thank you, Jason. Have a fabulous day. You too.